tonight, ladies and gentlemen, now we um, are unfortunately at a disadvantage. Uh, Spike Milligan, our colleague, is uh, not very well at the moment, and uh, so we are doing the show without him. We weren't going to do a Goon show at all tonight, and another colleague of ours, Mr. Larry Stevens, uh, started on another show, and then he became suddenly rather ill, and uh, he can't continue with the show. I think we're next on the list. Hello, and welcome to GoonPod. This episode, we're talking about Larry Stevens. After Milligan, Stevens was probably the most important figure in terms of nurturing and developing the Goon Show universe, uh, certainly in terms of the script writing. He had over 130 Goon Show scripts credited to him, mostly in collaboration with Spike, although a handful were written either on his own or, or working with Morris Wiltshire. Uh, he was more or less a constant presence within the goons in a circle for the duration of the 50s until his untimely death in 1959. Uh, joining me this week is the writer Julie Warren. Uh, she's the author of uh, a marvellous and recently published biography, It's All in the Mind, The Life and Legacy of Larry Stevens. Hello, Julie. Hello there. Yeah, as I say, it was a really good, really good book, a really interesting read. And for someone like me who uh, although not recently, but certainly when I was much more of an obsessive fan back in the 80s and 90s, I used to read and devour every resource I could about the goons. And there was a lot that actually you you write about in your book that was completely new to me in terms of goon mythology. Uh, so just wanted to establish what's your personal background to Larry Stevens? Yeah, the book has been a real personal journey for me because um, Larry Stevens is a member of my family. He was my mum's cousin. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd grown up, I'd heard about him from my grandmother and she'd mentioned he was a writer of The Goon Show, but I really had no knowledge of what The Goon Show was then. So I just kind of knew that there was this guy called Larry who was a writer. I remember um, I had a friend at school who was really, really into The Goons and mm-hmm. she was talking about them one day, and so I thought I'd get in there with a bit of my knowledge and said, oh, um, yeah, a member of my family used to write for that. And she's like, oh, who was that? Probably thinking Spike Milligan, Eric Sykes or someone. I said, oh, I don't know, his name's Larry something. And she's gone, oh, Larry Stevens. And I didn't even actually know what his surname was at the time. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's like gone on quite a bit from there. It was really when I started researching my family history when Who Do You Think You Are and things like that were around. Yeah. And I was quite surprised then to learn that he had like a real big connection with Tony Hancock as well and had been best man at Tony Hancock's wedding. Oh, this sounds interesting. I really need to find out more. Mm -hmm. But once I find something interesting, then I have to really delve into it and go as far as possible. So the more research I did, the more interested I became and then started thinking, I think there's a book in this. I'm going to write a book about this and then all kind of took off from there yeah because I I got into the goons when I was a when I was in my mid-teens and I was always aware of of his name because um it turned up more often than not in the closing credits of the show yeah but my memory is that although I, I was a member of the GSPS the Goon Show Preservation Society and I used to get the newsletters I can't remember there being much information even in those in terms of you know Larry's background Larry's life 
there was very little written about him in the books. Whenever I think of Larry Stevens, um, I immediately go to, in my head, I go to the Stolen Postman episode of The Goon Show. Yeah, I think that's quite common, actually. That's like one of the only ones that people are aware that he wrote on his own, generally. Now let's have a look what's in this registered boot. Good heavens, Moriarty, a registered foot. <laughs> what's it say, Gritpipe? It's from our landlord, dear sirs. Owing to complaints from the tenants of the other sewers about your singing and owing after 11 o'clock, <laughs> I do hereby give you a notice to quit. <laughs> or if you like, <laughs> it's like we've been given the registered boot, kicked out, sewerless, without a street over our heads. We've nothing but the water we stand up in. Great pipe. Great pipe. You're not listening. Hmm? You're not listening, great pipe. I'm not listening. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was just reading this advertisement on the back page of my suit. Listen here. <laughs> Wanted man for exploding. £1,000 offered for a genuine Charlie in good condition. Mike and Larry used to occasionally um, write on alternate weeks. So they'd both get a credit, a writing credit, when in reality, Spike was writing one week episode, Larry was writing the following week. But for copyright purposes, both their names appear on it. I think I know the answer to this from reading your book, but before I started reading it, I wrote down questions that I think, I guess I just wanted answered from, from the book. But one of the questions I wrote down was, was Larry good at sort of aping Milligan's humour and writing kind of Spike-type gags? Or the, the reverse of that, did Spike ever sort of copy Larry's style? There's a memo in the BBC archives that talks about this, about how um, Spike is really good, I think, at gag humour, whereas Larry's much better at situation comedy and he's better at structuring things. Um, Milligan mm. was more pure wit, whereas Stevens was kind of more methodical, more of a formulaic type of comedy, I suppose. The best goon shows were when the two of them worked together and like fused their two strengths to make like a rounded hole. I saw that memo because you you uh, reproduced that Dennis Main Wilson memo in the book. You wrote that uh, Larry around that time expressed a wish that Peter Eaton be the replacement for Dennis Main Wilson on The Goon Show because he was a drama producer and he would encourage shape and structure. I think Dennis Main Wilson had wanted to leave and go and do other things and Peter Eaton had been approached to do Goon Shows and, and you're right, like before that, Larry had been speaking to him and mentioned that because before it used to be like a series of four sketches broken out with musical interludes, but Larry thought it would be better if each one was like a small play. Yes. So they then went on to be like episodes that just covered a whole theme rather than the four separate sketches that probably had no relation to each other at all. Yeah, because there's a hand, there's a very small handful, as you know, of well, series two, there's maybe two or three series two episodes or fragments existing, which are very yeah. poor, very poor quality in terms of the recordings. They tended to be done at home by fans, didn't they? The, yes. Um, yeah. Like recorded off the radio. Yes, exactly. Or just putting a microphone up to the radio speaker and just getting all the extraneous noise in the household as well. Yeah. So they were just basically sketches, weren't they? Interspersed by musical items. And then it was series five that transcription services began they basically began keeping the shows didn't they yeah um, yeah because they used to record over like reuse the tapes up until that point so 
Can you tell me just a little bit in terms of Larry's early life? Because I know that he he grew up in the Midlands. He was um, born in West Bromwich and um, not long after he moved to Quinton, sort of an area of Birmingham. So he grew up there, um, got a scholarship, I think, to Birmingham Boys Grammar School, something like that. He then became an estate agent's clerk. Mm-hmm. But around about this time, like war was brewing. He was also like a really keen musician, really good piano player, and he was playing with jazz bands and they were playing in all the pubs around the Midlands. But then war arrived and he joined the army with the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders. Mm-hmm. But he wanted to be an officer, so he applied to do his officer training, got accepted onto that. And once he was commissioned, he must have seen a memo somewhere asking for volunteers to carry out um, operations of a special nature, which was for the commandos. So mm. he volunteered for that as well. Yeah. was accepted into the commandos. And then he was in Burma and India with the number five commando. Had like a really horrible war. Mm. Mm. Came back to the Midlands. Didn't really want to go back into a state agency where he'd He'd have had to have started from the bottom again, and I don't think they kept his job for him anyway. So he ended up moving to London um, and met Tony Hancock, and then it all developed from there. Was it the Hancock relationship he had that led him to be absorbed into the, the goon gang, I suppose you'd call it? Yeah, he um, he was going to the Nuffield Club, which was a servicemen's club, and they would have all sorts of entertainment, and twice a week there'd be variety shows. And mm-hmm. they'd have lots of established, well-known stars like Gracie Fields, people like that. But then amateurs were allowed to get up and give a turn and like participate as well. So there are agents and people from the BBC sort of lurking around in the shadows at the back, all looking to find the next big thing. And Larry had gone along there and met Tony Hancock's agent. And okay. she thought, oh, he's going to get on really well with Tony. I'll introduce her to them. And they did. They got like a house on fire, started living together. Larry started writing stage material for Hancock. And then one day, Hancock took Larry along to um, a pub in Westminster called Grafton's, where mm-hmm. he'd been before. And the landlord there was Jimmy Grafton, who was, he represented lots of up and coming comedians. So it was like a real hangout for all these comedians, this pub. And at the time, Spike Milligan was living in one of the attic rooms there. And so that's how they first met. And then um, Jimmy Grafton realised that Larry had this aptitude for writing comedy scripts. Also, like they all shared the same sense of humour, tasting music and things like that. So then he started collaborating with them on what was to become The Goon Show. Yeah. One of the things that, again, comes across from your book is that he, he, he didn't want to be a performer. He just wanted to write. He didn't want to be on stage. He was, I guess, quite an assuming, fastidious man who liked to dress smartly mm. um, and I guess would be often in stark contrast to Spike. I think maybe before the war, he was much more outgoing, but the war seems to have taken something out of him. He kind of withdrew into himself a bit, didn't want to be, I suppose, having been an officer and having to lead everyone all the time, he perhaps felt it was time for a rest. So <laughs> he kind of much preferred to take like a back seat and just work on the scripts rather than the actual performance. I don't know if he'd have been any good at performing anyway. So he strikes me as having been quite a shy man. 
I've seen mention in books before that if you spoke to him, he'd blush and kind of wanted to hide himself in the corner almost. I think it probably worked well with Spike. Spike was obviously much more outgoing and, again, there's script writing balanced each other out. I think perhaps their personalities balanced each other out as well. Yeah, but Spike had a very thin skin as well. Oh, yeah. The, the slightest perceived slight, and he would be in bed for three weeks recovering. Yeah, yeah they had quite a tempestuous relationship. Sometimes they'd be like the best of friends, couldn't get enough of each other, would spend like every waking hour together. And then like, occasionally they'd have these massive rows where they wouldn't speak to each other for weeks on end, wouldn't even want to look at each other. They'd be having to write scripts separately without talking to each other. So I think perhaps that's where um, Jimmy Grafton came in. He was responsible for editing things, so he must have been a very skilled scriptwriter himself to kind of to joined all these things up and made them presentable to go out on the air. Yeah, because Spike obviously famously used to fall out with Peter Sellers on a almost on a monthly basis, if not a weekly basis. Um, and again, reading your book, he and Larry frequently fall out. It, it does appear that. Spike Milligan had a bit of a chip on his shoulder, possibly because of Larry's, the fact that Larry had been an officer during the war while Spike had been a private. Ray Galton and Alan Simpson, I spoke to them early on when I was researching the book, mm. and they told me that Spike would often take the mickey out of Larry for being an officer, but kind of almost in a spiteful way. It, it did almost seem that he didn't like the fact that Larry had done, well, reached a higher level than him in the war. Yeah, well, that's the thing about Milligan being such I don't know, a barrel of contradictions because he lived, lived his life through the goons, through his novels, through his war memoirs, thundering against the establishment and, and the BBC especially and the British class system. And, and he was he's such, such an amazingly talented man. It's a shame, I think, that he, he almost couldn't accept this. He needed constant reassurance that he was his genius. Yeah. And so it was like, fighting against everyone all the time. It's fair to say that he doesn't come out of the book, Spike doesn't come out of the book in a particularly positive light. Mm. I did um, try to be balanced. I really tried to be balanced, but I'm sure I'm obviously a bit, Larry being a member of my family, probably did have an effect on the way I viewed things. I did try and Oh, look, absolutely. But the number of books I've read over the years about, you know, biographies of sellers, biographies of, Milligan himself, they pull no punches. And, and it was clear that certainly, especially in the 50s, while he was writing The Goon Show, he, he, had, he, he could be a, the, the most wonderful person to be in a room with. And conversely, mm. you'd run a mile to avoid him because he could be so up and down. I don't want to dwell on it too much, but just like you say about him, him needing constant reassurance. There's comments that he makes about Larry the highest paid typist in the business being one saying that Larry died conveniently. It was very nice of him. Yeah, it did make me feel really sad for Larry, actually, to be remembered like this, because these are the things that have stuck in, these are the things that are mentioned in books. And mm. I just feel sad that the amount he contributed has been forgotten. I mean, it was the um, 70th anniversary last yes. week at the yes. time of recording. And I don't think I saw Larry's name mentioned in a single article about the 70th anniversary. And that made me a bit sad for him as well. Yeah, I, 
as I say, when I was really into the goons, he, I suppose I would equate him slightly with Wallace Greenslade in as much as, although Wallace was a lot more, um, quote, visible because obviously he was announcer on the goon show, but in terms of any sort of biographical information about him, there was pretty much nothing at all, or not back then anyway. True. Is there now? I don't know that there is now. I don't know if there is. Um, It was quite pleasing to read about how Larry and and Sellers were very close. Yeah, that surprised me as well. Peter Sellers obviously was familiar with growing up, even though I didn't know about the Goon Show at the time. And I mostly think of him actually as being on It'll Be All Right on the Night. Yes. Famous um, clip of him in the lift, isn't there? In the lift. That's right. Yeah. So, like, he's a massive star. So it's it was kind of gobsmacking almost to know that he was such a close friend of a member of my family. I just wish I'd have had the opportunity to speak to him and hadn't taken so long to research my family history, really, because I'd have loved to have talked to him about their times together. They worked yeah. together on all sorts, on um, the Lady Killers, on Muckinese Battle Hall. Yeah, obviously Sellers had his own issues. Um, <laughs> yeah. One of them being that he was very superstitious in the 60s, or was it possibly the late 50s into the 60s, he hooked up with a chap called, I think, uh, Morris Woodruff, and who, who kind of pretty much made his decisions for him in terms of what films to do. and uh, it? Like what colours to wear. And what colours to wear, and yeah. Um, initials of women to marry. That's oh yes, that's right. Yeah, Britt Eklund, B.E. Yeah, which, yeah. Which could have been Blake Edwards. <laughs> um, yeah. um, one of the things again that that comes out in the book is that Sellers was devastated when when Larry died, and after his death, Sellers tried contacting him through a medium. The medium he went to said that there was some someone from the other side called Fred, which obviously is a goon name that they would have used. Yeah, during, I think during the war, Sellers had met um, a guy called Terry Roberts, possibly, and his mother was this um, this famous medium. Mm. And so when Larry died, he kept getting the feeling that he was, oh, I think they made a promise to each other, actually, that whoever went first would try and contact the other one once they got over the other side. And um, so once Larry had died, Sellers was certain that Larry was trying to get in touch with him. Mm. I think I can't remember what film he was working on at the time, but he mentioned it to one of his co-stars, like when peculiar things happened, he'd say, Oh, that's Larry Stevens. Yeah. So he decided to get in touch with this Terry fella to see if he could make an appointment with his mum and went along to visit her and she her spirit guide, Red Cloud, was ready with the message saying like he hasn't long passed over, so he's a bit confused, but he's touching his head. But he says, um, he gives you the code name Fred, then that should mean something to you. And that was like their favourite name to use, that show called Fred, and there were Freds all the time in the Goon Show. So he was then convinced that that was Larry, and Larry had got in touch with him. And I think his interest in the paranormal and things like that developed from then on. Yeah, and as just, just going back to what we said before about Larry and Spike falling out and, and Spike falling out with Sellers, there's a very interesting story and actually it kind of feeds into what I was saying before about Spike being a barrel of contradictions because you, you talk about 
uh, an occasion when the Duchess of Kent and her entourage attended a Goon Show recording and there were drinks with the cast afterwards and Spike had to leave early because he had a prior engagement he couldn't get out of. It was supposed to have been that um, the cast was supposed to have been notified that the royal, like members of the royal family were going to be attending the recording, but for some reason there was some administrative error or something, so they weren't actually told about it. Yeah. The actual day of the recording. So weren't suitably dressed, as you say, Spike had made a prior engagement to go out to dinner that he couldn't cancel, so he had to leave early, and he just was really, really angry about it. Well, you said that Sellers had been asked by the Duchess why Spike had left, and Sellers being Sellers either lazily um, or just because he didn't think, uh, said that Spike was an Irish rebel and subsequently didn't didn't really care for royalty. Yeah, um, what a thing to say. <laughs> yeah, um, which to me makes me think, well, the Spike Milligan that we all know, you'd think he would he would hear that and laugh. But yeah, it appears especially it, when you consider what he said later about the Prince of Wales. Yeah, absolutely. It, that's right. It seems to have, to have crushed him. He had a mini meltdown and he wrote a letter to apologise to the Duchess. And it just, it kind of gives the lie to this sort of scourge of the establishment figure that yeah. he liked to cut. It's quite interesting to see later on as well when they were making arrangements for whatever the next series of The Goon Show was and Spike had written down suggestions for how he wanted things to be handled. He made a point of mentioning that if any special guests were um, due in the audience, particularly royalty, then he needed to be told about it. Yeah. Was that the, was that when he was... That, was that for anticipating the beginning of Series 9? He was, he was about to go off to Australia, wasn't he? Yes, that was it. Yeah, because 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 you you wrote about he had a list he had a list as long as your arm of of demands which were later downgraded to requests. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but one of them one of them which jumped out at me and and it's not not specific you know it's nothing to do with Larry but yeah he was keen for Valentine Dial to take over some of Sellers parts. Yeah, that really jumped out at me as well. So I wonder if that also related to the quip about him being an Irish rebel and not wanting to mix with the royal family or something yeah, like that. Yeah. I mean, I could only, I could just about imagine Valentine Dial doing grit pipe thin. That that would be about it, I think. It t- what about Seekin with regards to Larry? Were they close? Were they, you know, did they, did their families meet? Did they go out for meals? Um, not so much, I don't think. I think perhaps more after Larry's death. Um, Seacon kept in touch with his wife, Diana, and her second husband. And I think they used to dine together. And not long after Larry's death, Seacon apparently paid for Larry's wife, Diana, to have singing lessons. And she later went on to sing with the Philharmonic Choir or something like that. Seacon, he seems to be the only person that always got on with everyone else of all the mentions of all the squabbling between the cast and the producers and whatnot you never see a mention of harry seeker who just must have been so lovely and so even tempered and yeah he he's he seems to keep on the keep out of trouble during the 50s he obviously keeps his distance in terms of his home life and his family life separate from... yeah perhaps had a very happy settled family life Probably yeah. helps, doesn't it? During series three of, of The Goons, there was a, an extended period when Spike was in hospital. Was it nervous exhaustion or just a breakdown? Yeah, a yeah, breakdown. I think he threatened to kill Sellers with a 
potato peeler, something that's like right. that. That's right. That had been building up to that point, and yeah, then he spent a period of time in hospital. Yeah, and so so Larry had the burden of most of the scripts during his absence, and he also negotiated contracts for him and Spike with the BBC. Yeah, I'm um, not sure that he actually had any experience in doing things like that, but Spike obviously really trusted him because he'd negotiate contracts. He was, I think, allowed to sign on Spike's behalf as well. Yeah, yeah. He used to handle all this kind of thing before they got themselves agents and handed over the task to someone else, someone more qualified. And then I guess in, into series, by the time series four comes around, Larry is showing signs of possible paranoia, um, which could be down to PTSD. He's starting to drink more and he kind of gets sidelined from the show around this time. Yeah, he seems to have undergone his own breakdown around series four. Uh, it does really, it does really look like it was post-traumatic stress disorder, like delayed from the war. Uh, he, mm. was, he was keeping in touch with Commando Association and he was a member of, and would get their regular newsletters. And I think he must, he'd read like a couple of bits of information about people he knew that suddenly brought everything back to him. Yeah. Started drinking heavily and not being able to cope with any pressure or didn't really want to know anyone or talk to anyone. Yeah. Seemed to start disliking all the people he worked with, his wife, and just like pushing everyone away and wanting to just retreat. Yeah. Um, so he wasn't getting his scripts written in time. He yes. had a couple of warnings, and in the end, they said, "Enough is enough. You know, we can't, we can't work with you like this." And so he was sort of struck off the goon show, wrote, um, road stuff. Do, do, do you feel that it was also possibly he was just burned out because he'd done so much writing for, obviously the goons, but also Hancock had written. Um, uh, things like vacant lot, welcome to welcome. Um, yeah, I suppose it could have been. It just, yeah, it does seem to have written loads of stuff. There's stage material with the East Rope, Jimmy Grafton as well, and and the Hancock, something for Arthur Askey and John Pertwee also. Yeah, the the um, Hancock Fifty Two Royal Variety performance as well went down a storm. Yeah. Um, I think that's um, the first recording of Hancock performing live on stage that exists is this um, Royal Variety performance with material that Larry wrote for him. And he'd written, um, he'd written about, about Royal Naval Commander, mm. specifically for the Duke of Edinburgh. Yeah. And the Duke of Edinburgh apparently found it hilarious and he disappeared, like doubled up with laughter behind the chrysanthemums, according to the BBC radio <laughs> commentator. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You said about him writing for, um, among others, John Pertwee. Hmm. And in your book, you, you reproduce a really interesting memo that was sent to the head of BBC Head of Variety, again by Dennis Main Wilson. I'm just going to read out a fragment of this memo because it's just quite enlightening in terms of how, I guess, bad Larry had got, but yeah. he, he kind of turned a corner. So Main Wilson writes, you may or may not have known that Larry Stevens, who in the days when I was doing the goon shows, one of the best writers in the business, has been off form owing to his personal troubles for more than a year. And we've had none of his early brilliance for a long, long time. I thought of having the Milligan and Sykes 
Colton and Simpson complete team to work on the sketch, but having heard the Frankie Howard show decided against it. My other writer, Jimmy Grafton, was stuck in Madeira and for all I know was still stuck there. I then decided to have a crack at bringing Stevens back onto his early form. It took us 10 days, during the latter four of which neither I nor my secretary were able to get more than two or three hours sleep. It was rather pathetic to see this fine brain trying to struggle back to its original brilliance. However, I am most excited to say we achieved it. The script was finished between the three of us at approximately 3 a.m. on the morning of the show. Since after the recording, Stevens has become a changed man, and I'm very much looking forward to his next script, which should be produced with far less effort. I mean, that sounds like uh, that was a monumental effort just to get a sketch written. You know, they're up, up till three in the morning. But then it kind of once Larry had cracked it, he then... Yes, Mayne Wilson must have really valued what he used to do to thought it was worth the effort to try and get him to do this. Yes. I think it's quite heartbreaking to read that initially when I first found that memo in the archive. Yeah. Just, Absolutely, to have that much faith in someone. So well written as well, the memo, even though it's just the memo, you can really picture yourself being yeah. there and seeing the struggles, I think. Yeah. So that, that would have been, I think, was it 54, 55, around that time? And gradually he, Larry, begins to officially or unofficially uh, work again with the goons in terms of script duties. Yeah, he and Spike seem to have become really good friends again around that time as well. Perhaps they more understood each other as they both suffered breakdowns. Perhaps it helped them to better understand the other. Yeah, well, Spike had that bloody-minded attitude that, like you said before, you know, he didn't need it. He doesn't need any help. Um, yeah. He's got that Irish because I'm half Irish. And my father is like this. I don't need any help yeah. from anyone. Where deep down they they know in the heart of hearts they do need help. Mm. Um, and yeah, I think but not wanting to admit it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There's an interesting little section in there that caught my eye as well. Uh, mm. Gra Graham Stark was a close friend of Larry. Graham Stark was invited to take part in the summer theatre and he didn't have an act for it. It was his first year doing it. So he asked Larry to write something for him. Mm -hmm. so Larry wrote this sketch for him, I think, about um, something by Moliere, which I can't remember what it's called now. Yeah, no. So Larry wrote an act for Graham Stark to perform and he went on to win an Oscar for it. See, not an Oscar Oscar, it was a concert party Oscar where they'd been around the whole country, the um, organisation, concert party organisation, to find the best summer show. Yeah. And Graham Stubbs was judged as being the best show that year, so he won a bucket and spade Oscar, it was called. Right. Graham Stark was friends with Stanley Kubrick. Um, yeah. Stanley Kubrick I'm, I'm fascinated by and always have been. You talk about how Larry's wife, Diana, was very striking looking, very beautiful. Yeah, she was a model. Graham Stark shows Kubrick some photos of Diana. And it's not quite clear from the way it's quite the, the way you write. It's quite ambiguous. Um, mm. Kubrick, Kubrick was inspired at the time to seek the rights for a, a novella, which he wanted to film, which eventually would become Eyes Wide Shut. But... Mm. Was he looking to make the film back in the late 50s and was he looking to cast Diana? No, I don't think he was looking to cast Diana. They were quite, um, I'm not sure how to say this, sort of glamour shots of Diana. 
All right. So, okay. And uh, so um, this is what put into his mind that he wanted to then film that type of film. How did Larry feel about that? <laughs> well, yeah, he must have known actually because some of the photos are still in the collection I looked through that's in the Stephen the Stevens family yeah. descendants have got, which was like Larry's personal archive. So he must have known that Graham had taken these particular photos. But I suppose her being a model, perhaps he didn't think too much or he might have been there at the same time. Who knows? Larry, as he as he gets back in in the, I guess from series six onwards, he's he's working again with Spike and the goons. And he's having to really battle with the BBC to get writing credits listed in the Radio Times, for example. He was he was co-writing Spike, but the copyright department didn't want to acknowledge this officially because they were worried they'd have to pay out more money. And so I think Larry waited until the producer had gone on holiday and like chatted up his secretary and said, oh, get me a writing credit in the Radio Times where we own so yeah. yeah, yeah, I'll do that. Um, but someone from copyright department happened to see this memo and they all went a bit ballistic and like said, no, we can't do that because otherwise Spike and Larry will be asking for more money. Yeah. So they out, let Spike know what was going on and Spike thought it was absolutely preposterous. So Spike said, right, in that case, you won't put Larry's name in the radio times, you can take mine out. <laughs> so they were obviously really close friends at this time. And eventually, I think they came to some agreement and said that if Spike would put in writing that he would be responsible for paying Larry, then they would put both of their names into the Radio Times, credited for writing The Goon Show. Mm. At which point Spike pipes up and says, I've already paid him for the whole series anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Spike was always railing against the BBC. He was always at war with the BBC. But you can kind of understand it, because you mentioned about the 100th show, The Whistling Spy Enigma, which would have been... Mm first episode of series five and the BBC gave the grand total of 10 pounds for a celebration celebration, which I looked up with inflation that would be about um, 220 pounds today which (laughs) (laughs) we'll get so much champagne for that really (laughs) no a couple of things just regarding the show itself as well I just wanted to touch on I mean it doesn't exist anymore in terms of recorded form but they tried to they tried to nurture a catchphrase in the early shows, which was more coal, Larry, Larry, more coal, um, which didn't take off. They intended to repeat it quite a lot throughout the episode, more coal, Larry, Larry, more coal. Mm. And, um, but a lot of it was cut out from the episode that actually went out. So it didn't really have much of an impact (laughs) bothering in any future weeks either. So it's died a death in one episode. Yeah. Cause, cause famously and almost like cynically in 57 when they're in series seven milligan basically engineers a catchphrase it's almost like an experiment to see if it will if it will take off as a catchphrase he he does the um little jim character saying he's fallen in the water and it becomes a catchphrase just through sheer force of will oh dear children Look what has happened to poor Uncle Harry. <laughs> yeah, it's in the um, More Coal Larry, Larry More Coal episode. They do actually have a bit of dialogue where someone says, well, that's not funny. What's funny about that? And they say, oh, no, you have to repeat it like hundreds and hundreds mm. of times. And then eventually it will sink in. So that's, I guess, what he did 
in series seven with little Jim. Yeah. And there was the there was trouble again getting back to the BBC being overly officious. There was that episode from was it series three, the UFO episode. Oh, yeah. Tell us about that. Um they'd long been a policy in place at the BBC that there weren't to be any pseudo announcements or anything like that in any broadcast because it created panic in the past, things like, I don't know, War of the World and Yes. Things like that. But the goons were either unaware of this or just didn't care and so throughout this particular episode they kept interrupting the broadcast with um we apologize for interrupting the broadcast but we're getting reports of a flying saucer being seen over i don't know east finchley or wherever it was um if anyone spots it can they please ring the defense board immediately so it sounded quite real throughout but a lot of people took it to be serious and the BBC's phone lines were apparently jammed with calls for people saying, yeah, I've seen it, I've seen it. And yeah. So they just went apoplectic, the, like the top management at the BBC. I think it was Peter Eaton who was producing at the time. I think mm. he got hauled over the coals. They were told, like, never again are they to do anything like this. A memo had to be circulated throughout the BBC to make sure everyone was aware of the policy. In the newspaper quotes, the BBC management are saying, ha, 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 yes, oh, what larks, the goon show, ha, ha, ha. Yeah. Behind the scenes, they were just absolutely furious. Yeah, well, I never underestimate the capacity for the public to be easily fooled. <laughs> you, you mentioned you spoke to Galton and Simpson, among many others, and obviously mm-hmm. they, they, with Spike, with Eric Sykes, they formed Associated London Scripts. So, so it's mm-hmm. like a scriptwriter's collective, I guess with um, Beryl Virtue. Was she the first secretary? Yeah, she was the secretary there. In effect, did more than secretarial work. I think she organised them all and negotiated all their contracts and just kept them all on the straight and narrow, really, made sure the money was coming in. I think, um, did she create, um, or at least did she get men behaving badly off? I was just thinking that. Was that her or was that... I think that was her. Virtue. It might have been Sue. I'm not quite... I'll have to look that up. I should have done my research, but I'm sure that it was Beryl. Either I misread it or I didn't, or I wasn't concentrating enough. Was Larry not asked to join Associated London Scripts? Yeah, he was with them. There's a memo or something somewhere where Beryl Virtue's, oh, that's it, sent, Beryl Virtue sent a letter to BBC outlining all the different writers working at the agency and what they were working on at the time and when they were going to be available. Mm. And Larry and Morris Wiltshire are mentioned on their writing My Wife's Sister or something like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, and the army game as well. They went on to write the army game together. Yeah, funny enough, I've got I've got friends, and we certainly over the last twelve months we've watched an episode of the army game, which I'd never seen before. All right, let's have you, 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 and you get fell in. Company, wait for it. You're in the army now. Up, two, three, four. Up, two, three. The day you start in the army game, you think you'll surely die of shame. A thousand soldiers take your name, then stand around and gloat. They shave your whiskers and cut your hair, they give you something proud to wear. The trousers don't fit anywhere, and neither does the crow. They read you the rules, they lend you the tools, they teach you to be a soul. So when you get caught, it's nobody's fault. You can't say that no one told you. You're in the army, you're in the cake, you might as well accept your fate. Finding a person the day that you die. Cause you're in the loony goony bar, me army guy. 
we we watched the Macanese Battle Horn, which I all right, <laughs> which I had seen before. I, I used to have it on video years and years ago, which yeah. still holds up. Yeah. Uh, One of my favourite bits of that is the um, closing credits. Those who did not appear, Lurgy the Wonder Dog, and yes, Frida Clench, Underwater Soprano, Own Tank. <laughs> That's what I was going to ask you, because again, one of the things that comes out of the book is Larry seems to revel in these names, these crazy names. It seems even much more than Milligan. Yeah, he seems to have really like, put a lot of work into it. There's, I found um, in his personal papers a whole list of comedy character names that he compiled to use in his comedy writing. Yes. Like reproducing the book as an appendix. Yes, that's right, yeah. Yeah, well, he's... <laughs> Dog Worthing Key Fart and Fern Mule Boot, one of the closing credits on the Macanese Battle Corn was one of his comedy character names and Sid Crimp and things like that. And another couple that appear in Macanese Battle Horn is from this list of names we compiled. One of the things that jumped out at me, because I'd always assumed it was Sellers playing the piano, but on the, um, the spin-off, the Moriarty song, You Gotta Go Owl, it's Larry yeah. playing. It's Larry playing piano. Yeah, I can't remember what he's credited as on now. Is it um, Gravely or Gravely Stevens? Gravely Stevens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gravely Stevens. Yeah, but I was assumed because Sellers used to play the piano very badly on the Goon Show, yeah. didn't he? And yeah. Larry was like a proper good pianist. <laughs> but but he kind of got he got bored quickly, and so he would he would pl- he would play well and then play badly deliberately. Is that right? Yeah, um, he and Spike used to share an office at Associated London Scripts and then I think the second set of offices they moved to, the room was big enough to have a piano in there. And Gordon and Stinson say they used to often like, love to hear Larry playing the piano while he and Spike were supposed to be working and Spike could accompany him on his trumpet. But then Larry just couldn't be bothered to get to the end of anything and would just like stop playing in the middle of something and apparently Gordon and Stinson used to find it really frustrating <laughs> when he didn't carry on playing. Right. Uh, and obviously, you've got to go, Al was um, produced by George Martin. So there's that Beatles mm. connection. I'm guessing sort of late 50, well, late 57 or 1958, Larry goes for a medical and is basically told that he's suffering from extreme hypertension and that, and that he, and he's put on weight and he's drinking heavily. And uh, the doctor basically says, you'll be lucky to see out the year. He kind of goes into denial, it seems, Larry. Yeah, he was, having been a commando, he'd always been really fit. The commando training was up to the standard of like a professional athlete. So he'd always mm. assumed that he was fit, probably started to think he didn't really need to take so much care of himself. So he'd gone for this medical to get a mortgage and thought it was just going to be straightforward, ticking the boxes. And so cannot imagine what a shock it must have been to have been told, mm. well, we've got a year to live. Yeah. If you like give up drinking, smoking, follow a low fat diet, it might last a little bit longer, but that's it, buddy. Mm. But he didn't believe this because when he'd been with the commandos, the big thing was it's all in the mind. Um, you, yeah. you can overcome anything, it's all in your mind. You've just got to get past that barrier and you can do anything, be anything. So he assumed, right, if I put my mind to it, then I won't die. I'm going to make sure I don't die. But sadly failed <laughs> in that. So, yeah, so on the the night that the Goons had recorded the classic remake of Dishonored, so Dishonored again, 
in January 1959, Larry went out for a meal with a friend of his and basically collapsed and soon after died. Yeah, he'd, um, he'd popped along. He was in the studio audience to see the recording before he went off to meet his friend for dinner. And yeah, as you say, just halfway through, suddenly collapsed onto the table. His friend bundled him into a taxi to hospital. But like within a few hours, he was dead. Just like that, he was only 35. And Spike claimed later that he was, he'd been with him. He claimed that um, he'd been out to dinner with Larry and Larry had died in his arms in a restaurant. Mm. But um, like the friend, he I spoke to the daughter of the friend he did go out with and he had no knowledge of anyone else being with them. And I'd managed to track down the, um, the doctor who signed a death certificate for Larry as well. Oh, wow, Asked yeah. Yeah, because I thought if Spike Milligan's been at a hospital, then you're going to remember. He was yes. really famous then, and he said that he had no remember, no memory of him having been there either. So I think it was just kind of like a good story, and so mm. Spike wanted to be a part of it and wanted to take part mm. in this kind of dramatic death, as it were. Yeah, so a, a very sad and very premature end to great talent, and who knows what he might have gone on to do. I don't know, perhaps got more involved in the carry-on, something like that, because that was something mm. that sort of developed out of the army game, really. Been of course. Nice. So, I mean, thank you for the, the book has been such a revelation for me and I've learned so much about someone who really was just a footnote in the mm, Goons' history. You. Obviously, you, you as it's now, as you say, it's 70 years since the first Goon show was broadcast. So when you were writing the book, a lot of the, a, a lot of the sort of, first-hand sources that you would have liked no longer with us were there any people that you tried to get access to but just couldn't quite manage to speak with yeah I really really wanted to speak to Eric Sykes because he was still around at the time um, yeah. I tried direct but no response and I had a friend Mike Brown who was I've dedicated the book to him actually he was one of the first he's from the Goon Show Preservation oh yes mm. was one of the first people really to look into Larry Stevens' life he sadly died mm. before seeing the completion of this um he was quite close friends with Eric Sykes agent and he tried for me but I just wouldn't let me get anywhere near him unfortunately oh, yeah. it's it's as I say it's a, a a wonderful book and if people want to to read this how can they get hold of this book well, it's, um, it can be ordered from any bookshop. It's not in stock or it's available on Amazon, all the usual kind of places. Unfortunately, it came out right in the middle of um, the first lockdown when all the bookshops were shut. So it, I wasn't able to have a launch event or anything like uh, that. Are you going to have a, um, a, a belated launch when things are back to normal? Yeah, that is my plan, but I'm just wondering how soon that will be. <laughs> yeah, how I'll be by then. <laughs> but yeah, I, I really would like to have a party and launch it properly. Absolutely. It was 10 years of research and writing, so kind of put my heart and soul into it, so I would like to celebrate it properly one day. So, Julie, thank you so much for, for sparing the time. I know you're busy. Uh, taking the time to speak with me today um i've really enjoyed it thank you no my pleasure my pleasure uh so thank you for listening please uh, rate and review in the usual places because uh, it really does help in terms of making the podcast more visible 
and I will be back uh, very, very soon with a brand new episode. Thanks for listening and bye.